Welcome back, everyone, to Out of the Main. John, this is the day I'm sure you've been waiting for for a long time. We've had drummers, we've had bass players, we've had guitar players. And now, not not just a keyboard player, but the foremost keyboard player in the genre that we are discussing. I'm going to introduce him, Tom. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Percaro. Hey, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's an honor. Uh, you might imagine a podcast that covers music from the late 70s to the early 80s. The Picard name is uh, prolific. Uh, <laughs> on this podcast, we mention it all the time. So it's our honor to actually speak to you today. And, and welcome to the show again. And we want to start by first thanking John Zaka. Um, for listeners to an earlier episode might remember that John is doing a documentary on the life and career of Bobby Kimball. For which you've been interviewed, Steve. So I wanted to kind of hear what that process was like. Thank you, John, for making the introduction. And uh, do you remember going through? Uh, it's got to be an interesting experience to relive some of those memories, distant and, and near. Sure, sure, John. Uh, John seems to be. Uh, John's doing this documentary on Bobby, and it really seems to be coming from the right place. Uh, um, Bobby is someone who, uh, while he was kind of the wild card in the group, we were such this tight-knit group of family and friends um bobby was kind of the outsider in the in the band um bobby i just have a very warm place in my heart for bobby and i was so glad to be part of uh john's documentary and um be able to talk about the good stuff because you know what i mean there were there were definitely life's ups and downs and in the career of the band you know there were lots of ups and downs um as a band and the individual people in the band and um but with bobby it's easy to accentuate the positive if you know what i'm trying to say and uh um i have these great memories of uh um of working with Bobby and of our friendship. Well, we can't wait for that to come out. Uh, we've seen some of the early releases of like, uh, you know, the, the trailers. <laughs> it's already tugging at our heartstrings, John, isn't it? Yeah. I even saw somebody today or like maybe a half hour before I came up here in one of the Toto fan groups asking the question, when is kite on a string going to be ready? So people want to hear it. So what else is keeping you busy these days, Steve? Uh, any new projects to talk about? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm very, very excited these days. I'm very happy these days. I, uh, I've suddenly found myself in a position where every day I get up and I just work on songs. I work on songs that I write and I co-write and, um, and I get to use my studio and all this stuff that I love. Um, and I get to spend my day in the studio working on my songs, doing exactly what I want to do. I mean, I've always been in my studio, uh, um, usually, and for a lot of years, I was uh, doing a lot of film work for a while. And then also I spent uh, from 2010 to 2019, I was on the road quite often with Toto. You know, I kind of did another, what was supposed to be one summer turned into nine summers. And, um, uh, I and I had a blast and the guys were great and it was really fun. And, um, but now I was really missing being in my studio and, uh, um, doing my thing. And now I've reached this point where I'm, this is all I do. And I love it because, uh, um, you know, follow up for me has been very hard. It's so easy to start writing a song. It's so easy to start something with, uh, with a collaborator, but finishing is, uh, 
especially if there's no deadline. It's always been something that was always difficult for Toto, the band. Uh, you know what I mean? Without a gun to our head, we would have, uh, we'd still be working on Toto 4 right now. You know what I mean? If it was uh, up to us. Um, but uh, so deadlines have always been a necessary thing to finish stuff. And I, one thing that film work did help me do was to learn, to kind of grow up, to be honest with you, and realize that sometimes when I come into the studio, I mean, 95% of what I do is just fun. I really enjoy it. It's like being at Disneyland for me. You know what I mean? But when it comes to finishing stuff, every now and then it's just work. You know what I mean? Every now and then it's work. There's something I'd rather be doing. I'd rather be having dinner with some friends or being with my family, my kids, or watching a football game or whatever. Every now and then there is something I'd rather be doing than than uh, coming in here and having to finish something that's that's actually work for me. That's actually hard. Whether it's figuring out how to how to uh, to get a, a cue done for a t- you know for a film I'm working on or TV show, or figuring out how the hell to get out of that bridge back to the chorus of a song. You know, <laughs> key change. Right. Exactly. No, exactly. You know what I mean? It's um, sometimes it comes easily and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, bringing the stuff to life is the fun part. Shaping it into something finished is hard. And then the second thing I know that composers have difficulty doing, because I've had that problem, is allowing something to be in the past, letting it go, calling it done and moving to the next thing. Like you said, you could still be living, working on total four to this day but at some point you have to put it aside and call it done and allow yourself to erase the board right yeah no and it's difficult it's difficult i uh um you know i had there was something uh uh in my you mentioned my my solo album before that i was out six years ago yeah well i kid you not my favorite song on there there's been something that's been bugging me. I had had the vocals arranged in a certain way on the title track. And somehow when I mixed it, the arrangement got lost. I had just kind of muted some stuff. I had, I had arranged it a certain way on my computer and it didn't come across. It didn't wind up that way on the finished product. It's a very minor, very minor detail, but it's been bugging the hell out of me for six years. And suddenly one day I, I just happened after not listening to the song for several years, I put it on and listened to it fresh and it hit me what it was exactly what it was. Well, and I, and I actually got the tune back up from the pro tools files of the mix and fixed it. So <laughs> So <laughs> supposedly, if all the metadata stays the same, you can re-upload that and replace the one that's there. If you go want to go through that trouble, I yeah, guess. yeah, no, and the and the be honest, the metadata isn't the same. There are some plugins that don't exist anymore. Um, uh, yeah, that aren't uh, compatible with the newest yeah. system software. And but you know what? That's okay with me. I'm just <laughs> going to make it more better uh, <laughs> uh, and get back with my mixer. And uh, I'm gonna. Because this is more important that this that this arrangement aspect be right is more important to me than all of that all of those details being exactly like they were. 
Well, if you don't mind, I have a few questions about that album. 2016, it's called Someday Somehow. Um, listeners of the show know that we're like freaks for what we call personnel, right? Is looking back at these old records and seeing all the same names, you know, Percaro is a chief among them. But I look at the personnel in this record. There's a few names I wanted to read off here. Uh, Letty Castro. Michael McDonald, right? Steve Lukather. These should all be household names, but there's two in particular, actually a third, that jump off the page at me, uh, given this was recorded in 2016, and I wanted you to talk through how these tracks came to be. So Mike Picaro was featured on bass on a number of tunes, and Jeff Picaro appears on drums on Back to You. So that's easy. Uh, whenever I would demo something, whenever I would, would get, the, uh, um, get an, a spark of a song, and get a real strong start of something happening. Usually my first call would be to my brother, Mike, who for years and years just lived down the street from me. And uh, Mike would come over and throw a bass on. And sometimes the song was not even anywhere near close to being finished. But Mike would would throw a bass part on what I had. And uh, um, that survived some of those songs. You know what I mean? Some of those songs, the basic bass part, was Mike, you know, it was his bass part that uh, uh, was on there. And then, you know, I mean, look how spoiled I was. Every time, even though in when it was in the band Toto, Jeff and I could bump heads big time as far as technology and using drum machines and using pads and using samples and any of that kind of stuff. When it came to Toto, there could be uh, quite a bit of head bumping between us brothers. Um, <laughs> When it was the weekend and when it was just me working on my own stuff, Jeff would come over immediately and do whatever the hell I wanted. Whatever I asked him to do, he'd be glad to. He'd be glad to experiment. He'd be glad to try stuff. He'd be glad to play on pads, to use whatever kind of synth stuff, to play to a click or do whatever I I asked him to do. And um, look how spoiled I was. Look who I always had playing on my demos. That sounded like something maybe from the era of Seventh One. Is that about when it was recorded? The, that drum track, maybe? Uh, no. Uh, the song, I, actually, that was uh, Toto had cut that song, and I had done a couple versions of it. Toto had done had done it a couple times, and I had recorded it myself at David Page's studio. And I'm trying to think exactly when did you say the Seventh One? That's just kind of the vibe I got of the way he was playing this, the room around the drums no, and stuff. Because, uh, no, because I think it was earlier than that. Because okay. the seventh one, I wasn't a band member anymore. Right, right. Um, and I think, so yeah, this would have been before that. And it just never made the final batch of songs, you know. But I had a complete drum track. I found a version that had a... There was actually two or three versions of the song Back to You. Um, and... Uh, I grabbed uh, my brother Mike's bass part, my brother Jeff's drum track, and finished it. You know what wow. I mean? And then did yep. new synths on it. You know? So maybe that gives us an opportunity to maybe go back to the Toto era just a little bit. We could even go further back if we want, John. But before you do, before okay. you do, I have a, a sort of an addendum question to that because I know okay. your album, your solo album, Someday Somehow, came out 2016. Um, Total 14 was 2015, and you have a song on there called uh, Little Things. 
which sounds a lot like it could have belonged on your solo record. Was there any connection? Did one start to inspire the other? Uh, the you know, fourteen get you going to start this solo album, or what happened there? Absolutely, and you didn't mention my song "Bend" that was on the Japanese-only version. I don't have that one, but <laughs> yeah, it's, you can find it on. You can uh, uh, it's uh, it's up there on YouTube. You know All what right. I mean? Just yep. Toto Bend. Um, both of those were songs that were going to be for my solo album, mm. but, uh, uh, yeah, I found myself, uh, um, I'd been compiling stuff that was eventually going to be on a, on a solo album. And, uh, but then, uh, we, st- Toto included me. I wasn't officially, uh, a band member, but, uh, uh they kind of made it look that way, uh, for the Toto 14 album, um, they call it to- they called it Toto and and they included me completely in the in the production and in the writing and uh um um yeah I had that song The Little Things was one of the things I just finished uh, uh I'd finished it somewhat recently with Ali Willis the lyricist uh we had just kind of that was our we had just started working together and uh that was our the first thing we did Yeah there's so much big heavy stuff on that record that that one really stands out when it comes on it's just it is so warm and and easy on the ears i love that love that song really do oh great thank you i owe uh i owe a lot of that to ali you know ali was uh very big in the writing of that um it was actually kind of funny because i i wanted to get together with uh um lyrics have always been a weak point for my own for my stuff and i I wanted to get more collaborators as far as lyrics went. Uh, just that my musical output far outweighed any lyrical output I ever had. And um, so I got together with Allie to do words, you know what I mean? To mostly do words. And I had all the chord changes. The track was was all done. But what was funny was that uh, I really had no melody yet and, and wasn't sure. And... Um, what wound up being very strange is that she came up with most of the melody. Mm. And then when I got to writing the words, she'd go, so what do you think we should say here? And I would say a phrase and she'd go, let's use that. And she'd write it down. And then she'd go, then what should we say? And I'd go, well, you know, we should try to say this somehow. She'd go, that's perfect. Sometimes all you need is a sounding board. That's it. And I, I well, exactly. And I, I pretty much wound up writing all the lyrics <laughs> and she wrote the melody for the most part. So it was pretty oh, wow. cool. Oh, she just was uh, a great collaborator. Yeah. Interesting. And I, so I was, of course, I was completely devastated and heartbroken like many in our community when she uh, 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 passed away just mm. not too long later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I did want to hear the flip side to the. Uh, you said there's kind of almost two sides to Jeff Picaro. The one on the weekend, easy going. Yeah, tell me what you want. For my understanding of what I've read and heard from prior guests is that back in the day in the Toto era, even some of the session era stuff, is that he, 
I, I get the sense that kind of all eyes were on Jeff early on during tracking, and it wasn't until Jeff was happy with the drum track that they could move on. Is that an accurate uh, depiction of reality, or how would you contrast? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty accurate, and that would that would you could say that about you know I think in my opinion not every single one, but a lot of the sessions Jeff did, you know even though there'd be an artist and a producer there and an engineer, uh, Jeff kind of it really in the studio it, in those days you know pre digital it was really about getting the drum track, everybody's uh, goal even on, on tracking sessions, was nailing down that drum track because it was easy with all the isolation, right? Especially with the kind of sessions we did and how isolated the guitars and the bass basses were and the keyboards. Everyone else could easily punch in and fix stuff. You know, it was really the drummer that was very dodgy, punching in with sustaining cymbals and, uh, uh, you know, the way tape worked back then, punching in was a, a, a dodgy prospect if, if there was something wrong with the drum track. So it was really all about kind of nailing down the drum track, getting the drum track. And who else was going to tell you when you had the drum track other than, <laughs> than Jeff knew? You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure, yeah. there were producers that had input and artists definitely had input and engineers who definitely had input. But I think most people kind of looked at Jeff. How was that one? Was that good for you? Do you, you know what I mean? Do you want another one? Do you need another one? You know, Jeff didn't like doing a whole lot of them because he would start getting tired, to tell you the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, yeah, it was kind of all about, and especially in Toto, where Jeff was a co-producer. So he would, you know, every time we would start an album project, they would start off with, come on, let's let's all get in the studio like a band and let's cut. Let's record these songs like a band. Come on. And we'd all set up in the studio, including me, including me. We'd all kind of get set up. You know, we'd all get set. We did this about it. Just about every most albums that uh, every time we'd start an album, this would be the thing we'd start. You know, we'd start. And then, you know, once they locked in on what which song we were doing, one by one, we'd be dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> Always starting with me, you know, always starting with me. Yeah, those will be overdubs. Don't worry about that. And I, you know, my, my time was always uh, a little on top of it for my brother. You know, I just, it's just the way I'm wound. Uh, um, Same. You know, yeah. And my brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I play a little behind. He plays a little ahead. So we don't always meld. Yeah. And, and Jeff hated that. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is why he loved cutting with guys like David Page and David Foster. They... Michael O'Marty and these guys had such great, yeah. they, they laid back and had such a great pocket, you know, laid back without dragging yeah. and uh, uh, were always a great point of reference. And I mean, sometimes everybody in the studio would get dismissed. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? A lot of times it would wind up being Paige and Jeff, yep. you know? And the only reason Paige was there was so Jeff knew where he was in the song, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so when it came down to that, then, so, because I've read that that's sort of the way Africa was built up, was the two of them and then everything else came on. Did you like it better to not have to deal with the, the session and actually be able to, at your comfort level, come back later and add your parts and not be under the gun, under the microscope, people telling you you're playing ahead? Did, did you like, okay, now you guys leave and let me do my thing? 
Absolutely. Yeah. There was no <laughs> argument for me when I would, uh, uh, there was no argument for me whatsoever. You know what I mean? That was definitely the hot seat. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be in those tracking sessions. And I was, uh, um, you know, it was all about being productive and getting it done and uh, uh, getting a real solid, steady drum track was, you know what I mean, was uh, paramount when we were cutting tracks the way we worked. And uh, um, however, however, we could all help make that happen, even if it was by mm-hmm. laying back. Right. Uh, um, you know, we did it. Well, I have a question about, this is sort of an aside, but it'll eventually get us back to it because uh, when we see your name credited, it's often synth-related, whether it's credited as synth player or a lot of programming. The famous uh, picture of you standing in front of the modular synth, it makes it around, uh, you know, you, you had the long black hair and all that. It, it's made its way around Facebook probably a couple thousand times. But I, I had a question that... During your days when you were getting session calls, above and beyond Toto, did you ever get calls for straight up piano or straight up like Rhodes, or was it always just as a synth guy? No, I did some sessions like that. I sure I did a few things. Some of the very first stuff I did was playing piano on on uh, you know either demos or some tracking sessions. Occasionally, uh, um, Michael Boddicker helped me you know, get started in the studios. He, he was, uh, um, you know, he would, uh, have me sub for him when he was getting double booked and stuff like that. And some of those things, it was like, yeah, it was either like a single line synth thing, or they would just sometimes copy the piano part and give it to the synth guy to, to double on roads. And, um, um, you know, um, so I, I I sat in that chair a few times, but I uh, you know where I belonged was being an overdub guy. You know, was that because of comfort level, or was that like a business decision? You saw a niche you could fill because you understood the gear. Well, that was really the whole thing. That's why I got as deep into it uh, as I did. Was I saw that opening back then? You know what I mean? That all those great keyboard players, whether it was David Page or David Foster, or you know. Um, Anyone you can name, the really, really, really good players were not, especially pre-MIDI, you know what I mean, where it took a special cable to play a mini Moog from another synthesizer. It took some converter box or whatever. Um, You know, guys were in the synths that had a keyboard on it, and they, you know, they wanted to be able to play it. But as far as really knowing what you were doing on it. There was only so far these guys would go uh, being the pure players that they were. And at the same time, the, the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, the guys that knew the most about synths were these nerds, were the guys with pocket protectors. <laughs> and uh, they were, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm being, I um, that's a generalization. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what I'm saying? The guys yes. that knew the most, the guys that built it, weren't guys that you wanted to dial in your your funk Moog bass sound. You know what I mean? Or or try playing it. Do you ever tinker around with that gear to this day, Steve? Do you ever tinker around with that old vintage synth gear and say, "Oh, let's go back and"? Oh, absolutely. Know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but now, I mean, we can get into that later. I mean, now there's a lot of people that see me uh, that wonder why I'm not using more analog stuff and. The guys that are, especially younger guys that are purists and and uh, um, 
wonder why I don't uh, exploit that stuff more nowadays than I like I used to. And, um, the, you know, the answer is simply because I'm all about songwriting now and going from tune to tune to tune to tune. Um, yeah. I mean, back in those days, I wanted to show what could be done. Uh, it was very, uh, it was very difficult. I loved being that guy to go back to what we were talking about. I loved being that guy. I found that slot where, uh, um, I was handy to have around and I loved, I always loved from, from elementary school where I met this kid, Peter Rylick, who, who was better than me at piano and stuff. I love, I became friends with him. He became my best friend immediately uh um i always loved working with other keyboard players especially ones that were better than me it was just about loving keyboards and uh um you know Paige and i together we're a formidable team you know what i yeah. mean walking into a session we kind of would have things covered you know what i mean i'd go in there and a lot of people would hire me um because of my synth stuff but i loved having david tag along with me or, and with him, vice versa. If he was all of a sudden, sometimes people would just call on him. And uh, if he thought there was any chance he was going to have to do anything with synths, you know what I mean? He loved having me tagging along with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, together, it was covered. You know what I mean? We were covered. If someone needed some to improvise jazz and blow over changes. That was you. Oh, hey, that's right. <laughs> you know what so, I mean? That yeah. was not me at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've never played at the Baked Potato in my life. Right. I've never been asked and never will be asked to play at the Baked Potato in my entire life. Um, but when it comes to the electronic side, because you mentioned like taking one keyboard and figuring out how do you make this keyboard control this keyboard and the different connection box. So a lot of people, uh, maybe they do or maybe they don't know, but you played that iconic riff on Don Henley's Dirty Laundry. Now, I, from what I understand, it started with organ, but there's more going on there than just organ. Is that true? What, what's all going on in that sound? Yeah, no, it was just all about, uh, uh, I got called very late at night by my brother, Jeff. He'd been working on, the, on, on this with Don, and they just, they wanted this thing. They wanted it to be this real farfisa that, that Danny Cooch had there, um, and they just wanted it completely nailed. You know, they wanted it to be perfect. And uh, again, it was kind of, it was this, I love talking about that session because it was really where uh, the music and the technology kind of met. Thank God Greg Ladani uh, um, had recorded the sync tone of the drum machine. They had done it to a click. They recorded, uh, it was done to drum machine. And, but still, even if people were using drum machine in those days and recording it, very rarely did anyone record the sync tone so that you could sync it up again. But I walked in, and that was the first thing I looked at when I realized what they wanted to do. And uh, um, what, I did, what I did was uh, uh, I just gated the, the... They didn't want it to be a synthesizer, for sure. They wanted it to be this Farfisa organ that was sitting there. And I just simply um, got the drum machine back in sync and programmed on a cowbell the pattern that they wanted 
the organ to be playing. But da 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 da. And you're just holding keys down. And I'm just holding keys down. <laughs> oh my god! Now, the farfisa is being fed through a, through an amplifier. You know, I brought a little piece of modular gear. Actually, yeah. that one that's behind me mm. is actually the exact piece I brought with me for dirty laundry. Wow! I, I asked the right question to the right yeah. the right person. Right? Yeah. No, the timing was right. The right time. I, yeah. I, uh, um, that's actually all I brought with me to the session. What is that? It's just a little piece of uh, Polyfusion modular gear. And it's got a couple of VCAs. It's got a envelope follower where it'll take an audio signal and produce a gate. And follow that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then those envelopes that are in there, um, it's got a couple VCAs that I just, I put the organ through there. So it was the real organ sound. And the, uh, whenever the, um, not to get too techy, but uh, uh, it made it so that the cowbell pattern I programmed would open up would open up the VCAs um, that had the organ going through it only when it got the cowbell pattern. And any other layers are all effects like delays or reverb, right? That's, that's it. Yeah, well, yeah. then there's tons of stuff yeah. afterwards. And yes, we put a little tape slap on it. Uh, but Because it doesn't sound like a, an organ anymore. That's for sure. It sounds like you can hear that there's maybe an organ in there, but it does. It ends up sounding more like a synth, if you ask me. I'm sorry to tell Danny that, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sounds cool. That sound is pretty much just that. You know what I mean? Um, we did tons of stuff. Don was great. Don was. Uh, uh, I had told him about this thing that had been released a couple of weeks ago, but that the, you couldn't get one. It was called uh, it was called an emulator. There was this mm. cool thing I thought that we yep. could do some interesting things on, and I says, "But I can't, I can't get a hold of one." And I was pretty well connected, yeah, in synth world then. But um, boy, a couple of days later, Don had one there at the studio. Uh, um, and uh, we used it quite a bit. Well, Steve, I hope, uh, if you don't mind indulging us, we can't let the occasion of a Steve Picaro interview come and go without asking you about the iconic synth solo in Rosanna, John. And we've talked about this multiple times in multiple ways. So yes, rather than just having a riff on it, what do we want to know that's new? Well, what we want to know, so kind of take us into your process. So to me, there's three elements of it. There's the, you probably had to design most of those sounds from scratch because I think we were probably still predating being able to just punch up presets, right? But you had to come up with, you've come up with multiple synth sounds that all have to have their own voice, their own sound so that they have, they speak their own way. They can layer over each other. And then there is the, this is not, as Tom said, it's not you just went in and ripped a solo. You wrote parts that cascade over each other, all of that. You're on your own, I guess, at this point. They said, here's your, what is it, eight bars? Um, what was your process like? Did you start creating the sounds? Did you start creating ideas musically and then find sounds? How did you go about it? Well, just to, to precursor it a little bit, you know, I'd been getting very frustrated um, uh, with my with my place in the band as the as the uh, resident, you know, synth geek. You know what I mean? It uh, um, the guy, all the guys in the band, whether it was my brothers or David Page or Steve Lukather, these guys were all so talented. They could sit down on a Toto session just like they would on any other session they did. 
And uh, uh, Lukather was just brilliant at coming up with guitar parts. He'd hear something, he'd hear a song, and he just, the parts he would come up with were just, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? On yeah. my songs, on everyone's songs, on all the sessions he did, he just would come up with these parts so quickly and and be able to execute them beautifully like that, you know? Uh, the same with my brother Jeff, right? He He would just... He'd hear a song, they would map it out, and boom, you know, they would be able to do it. Um, I was always frustrated with with synthesizers um, because I could be very fast on sessions. I could do a three-hour session with a Quincy Jones or a David Foster, and we could do get the synths done on three songs in three hours. But I was always uh, haunted by what the possibilities were. Quite often they would say, hey, yeah, let's do a string part. You know, do a, give us some string sounds and let's do a string part. And I'd be thinking, yeah, I can kind of improvise a string arrangement and we could do a pads pass. I'll look at the chord chart and we'll do a pads pass. And then we'll do a pass of like single line of a single line string thing. But I was always frustrated in thinking, you know, I learned how to write for strings. You know, I went to s- school and studied that. Boy, if I could be at home... And if they would show you the respect that they would show a string arranger mm-hmm. who wasn't expected to improvise his <laughs> string arrangement, <laughs> right. right? He went yeah. home and wrote that out and looked at the melody and looked at the chord changes and took his time. You know what I mean? If I would spend that kind of time on synths, that the result would be much hipper, you know? And I, I uh, it being Toto, it being my band... I wanted to show what could be done if more, if I had more time. Now, the problem was is that I wasn't an engineer. I had no idea really how to record. And um, on top of that, you know, on our, th- on our third album, just for you to know, the Before Toto 4, on our third album, David had put together this amazing studio that we uh, uh, called The Manor. And, and um, I had all, all of our synths were all set up all the time and going and um and we had this for the third album we had this eight track we had this eight track otari and uh i said to my i i thought oh i know what i'll do i'll um while the guys are doing their overdubs and cutting tracks i'll transfer the rhythm tracks to a couple tracks of the eight track and i'll do some experiments i'll experiment and then when it's time to do my synths with the engineer and the guys in the studio i'll know what i want to do I'll have had, you know, I'll have done my experiments and know what I want to do. Well, reality was I killed myself on that eight track. I doubled stuff. I combined it. I did all kinds of stuff that, you know what? No one wound up hearing. There was no way. There were sounds I got up on modular, huge modular sounds that I was never going to be able to get those up again. Those were presets you could save. Right. I wasn't going to be able to recreate that stuff with how much of that I did. And it was, so it was very, very frustrating because I mean, to this day, there's, that's some of my best work I ever did. And to this day, no one's ever heard Mm. it. (laughs) So um, David had then gotten uh, two 24 tracks, the Otari eight track which was just the wrong format, right? There was no way to sync it up at the time. David finally got two 24-track tape machines. And, um, and I went to Jeff Workman, 
who I actually really bumped heads with. We didn't get along very well on the third Toto album. He was the engineer co-producer. Um, but I asked him, I said, you know, I knew I wasn't an engineer. I knew I didn't at the time know how to engineer. I said, if I recorded myself, if they made me what we called slave tapes mm -hmm. in those days, if they made me a tape to work to, why couldn't they use what I did? Why wouldn't it be able to be used? And he just kind of, uh, um, he wound up very patiently showing me, teaching me about gain structure, mm. about where to turn what up, when and how, and the concept of zero VU, and if things are aligned right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And luckily, it mattered back then. on this Trident yeah. Flexi mix that had all these meters on it, even the effects ends had meters. So I could see, he was like, as long as you're not, you know, going way, way too far in the red over here, and you got a nice, healthy level. Now we'll go to the effect and turn it up here. He kind of just taught me the right order to turn things up and just taught me basic gain structure so that I was getting a nice level on tape, a nice, healthy, clean level on tape. So that's the precursor. Sorry if that's too long. That's yeah. okay. But uh, it made it so that when it got time for the song Rosanna, which is really the first tune we were working on, and uh, they had already done the horn arrangement, as a matter of fact. And David Page had done a rough, he did a keyboard solo that I wasn't even around when he did it. He did it in the studio. He mostly did it on Hammond organ. Um, but I knew I wanted to do something special there. This was a real... Toto song. It was, you know, my they had my brother Jeff had done this great groove. David had written this great song, and and uh, there was this space where there was going to be a keyboard solo, and I knew I wanted to do something special, and I I took my time. I I took my time and experimented, and uh, um, wound up writing it out, writing out different aspects of it. When I came up with the opening line, uh, um, you know, I wanted this real big fanfare thing and, and uh, introducing it. And um, it wasn't until the day before we were mixing the song and David and I had really gone, you know, David was right in there with me, doing a whole lot of it with me. You know, I made him write out the sequencer part, three-part harmony that wound up being all, you know, the modular stuff, this cascading sequencer part going on it wasn't just a random arpeggiator which is what i would might maybe do in a studio or just a single line sequence that i'd do stuff like that in the studio quite often we actually wrote out the three-part harmony of this cascading part all this stuff that you couldn't do on a session or would want to do with five other guys yeah. looking over your shoulder like this <laughs> looking yeah, at the watch yet? come on <laughs> looking at, you know what i mean none of yeah. them would have the patience for that you know, right. and I, and understandably, understandably, yeah. um, anyway, so that was the perfect example and what a cool song to be able to do it on. You know what I mean? On a number two hit song, uh, with this great drum groove and this incredible Bobby Kimball performance on vocals along with Luke. And, uh, um, I got to do my thing. I got to do this where the guy who mixed it, who happened to be Greg Ladani, yep. had nothing to do with the rest of the record. Oh, when he got it that day, when it was time to mix the song, he just had left and right, synth solo, left and right. He had no idea who recorded it or how they recorded it. Oh, my God. Where it was recorded. 
He just it was synth solo left and right. So it was basically pre mixed, yeah. All that all that done. stuff was I had bounced it down the night before. Excellent. Wow. So <laughs> Well, even so all that other stuff that was so brilliant that nobody's ever gonna hear, at least that is truly immortal and it is. we'll be hearing it forever and ever and ever. Awesome. So I'm thinking that's a good place to stop uh, hearing about the Rosanna solo. P- pretty epic story, huh? Yeah. You mean stop or take a pause? Hopefully you only mean stop. I mean pause. Well, no, I'm a pause, you know, for a week or so. Oh, thereabouts. All right. Seven days. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, you know, how grateful I am that we get a chance to hear those stories directly from the sources. I mean, isn't that incredible? Do you ever think you'd have that opportunity? No. No, no, no. It, it, it's funny. Every time I'm listening to a record now, even if it's somebody that we wouldn't even talk to, like I was listening to a Genesis record today and it, it brought questions. And I'm like, man, I'd love to ask Phil Collins this. But the the rap about Steve telling us how he did the Rosanna solo and that it ended up just as a stereo mix of, as he said, since left and right. And that's what was given for them to mix. So that would have had all of his... The synth par- parts that he played, of course, but they would have been panned where he wants them. They would have had the delays probably on them. We know he likes to use the delays to kind of have things bounce around in the stereo spectrum. So he would have handed that thing done to them and they would have mixed that in, you know? Yep. Yep. So that got me thinking just from a process standpoint, a lot of the reason that things were done like that, and in the case of this solo, he did it because he was afforded the time to go off, do it by himself, and present his vision. And his vision included everything, the synths and the delays and all the effects and all that stuff. And that sum is more valuable because it contains everything in his mind, as opposed to the individual parts and giving synth one, synth two, synth three to a mixer and letting them sort of disassemble it, reassemble it, whatever, that isn't the entirety of Steve's vision. Right. Now, to a certain degree, that was done back then because of maybe limitations. There were either track limitations or there were only so many effect units in a studio. So you would end up making these sort of commitments and saying... I'm going to put delay and reverb on this synth sound and I'm going to record it to the 24 track that way because I'm making this, as I say, creative decision, but it's also freeing up a piece of gear for later use. And, you know, that is a process that I use with page 99. I intentionally, because it started as for my own entertainment, Right, I wanted to make music the way we made music back then. It was purely for my own enjoyment. And so I sort of set these parameters that said, I'm going to do it that way. I'm not going to do things in, say, let's say, the way the modern way is done, where you can make all those decisions later. You know, I, I don't know if you remember, I shared on our account, uh, our Facebook, the there was a guy that did the production and mix of the track that donald fagan did with david crosby Mm. and he shows though and walks through the whole session that he's got up on his computer and some of the stuff like the keyboard parts are still in midi form really midi for those that don't know it's essentially a way to trigger the notes of uh, say a virtual synth in this case it was a fake uh, clavichord kind of like imagine a um a player piano that has the roller with the little 
punch outs in it and those are triggering <laughs> the keys. That's what MIDI sort of does electronically. And so here he is with the mix up. He's got the whole thing. The keyboard parts, particularly this clav part, is still in MIDI form. It hasn't been committed, say, to audio. He can still change the notes. He can move notes. He can add notes. He can take notes away. And it got me thinking that, is that a better way of doing things? We know Is it a trap we're getting into? Because mm. we have this ability to change everything right down to the final moment when we hit render. But that's different than, say, having a bass part or a guitar part or keyboard part or anything that you've recorded and you're committed to that. It's printed on the tape or whatever, mm. and it's locked. And now anybody that comes in afterwards has to respond to what's already there. They're either responding to another musician in the room or they're responding to what's already been recorded. As opposed to this way where they're assembling parts that aren't all can be moved and changed and added to. And is it is it taking away, I think it is, some of the mojo of a recording where everything, you make a commitment and then that commitment requires you to respond to that down the road. Not say, well, I can always change that first thing. So I'll do this way and then maybe I'll change that. And mm. Now you got a mix engineer or whoever's mixing the thing kind of making these tweaks and making these decisions. And I know this is a long rabbit hole, but I just kind of wanted to put that out there because it's such a different way of making things. And I wonder, Steve, I wonder how he makes his music now. Does he do it the old way or the new way? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you articulated uh, without me even realizing that it, one of the appeals of this uh, era of music is knowing what the limitations were and knowing everything that you just spelled out, which I listened to even modern versions of the same type of music. I always listen to with a skeptic's ear, like, did they do that with a computer? Yeah. Or did they do that live? Right. And it's like, I don't know why that should bother me either way, but it does. So uh, maybe a better way to put that is I have greater appreciation for the stuff that was done the old way because I know I've tried to do it firsthand. <laughs> I was in a studio in the 90s and didn't have all these tricks, right? It's like, it's hard to do what they did. So yeah, I, I don't think it's better. To answer your question, my opinion is the old way is better. But then again, I've, I crossed 50 a couple years ago. So. There's a cloud. I'm shaking my fist at it. I know. I it's it's hard to yeah. It's hard to figure that exactly out. But yeah, yeah. Well, it brings to mind a quick question before we get to the lightning round because uh, I wasn't going to embarrass you in front of Steve, and I don't think I did it in part two either next week. Uh, but you were legitimately inspired by his cerebral approach and his technique in a song that you did, and I hope we could play some of the synth solo in. What song is it? Yeah, well, that would have been Fantasy World. Let's hit it. Why not? Yeah, it's got that left-right, uh, different sounds. That was definitely inspired, it, very intentionally. And as you commented off-air, it does sort of have a little Rosanna beat to it as well. So so please tell me you didn't fix anything with a computer. You played that live <laughs> right through, right? 
<laughs> the old way. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said once I commit to it, it's printed, it's done. And I'll go so far as to get rid of the MIDI, get rid of the instrument so that I don't have the ability to go back because I have to police myself. Oh, nice. So Now that's a purist. Yes. Cool. All right. With that, let's uh, venture on into a lightning round. Fire. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go first since we already played one of my tracks. We're going to let you go first in the lightning round. How's that sound? Okay. Cool. Well, um, we talked in this segment of our two-part interview with Steve Carl about the fact that, uh, you know, we focused on his solo album and the fact that you pointed this out. So talking about something found at sea, you found out at sea that Jeff Picaro, of all people, appears on this album from 2016, yeah. as does Mike Picaro. So uh, this is a song that Steve just told us that Toto had to cut a few times before, and I don't think it ever saw the light of day. So it finally did. This is called Back to You. And let's hear a little Jeff Picaro and Mike Picaro in the rhythm section. Sounds like Toto to me. <laughs> There's no doubt. I know. Oh, it's so cool that I mean, I had no idea that even existed. So yeah. that's so yeah. cool. Um it, it actually stands out on that record. It sounds different than the rest of it, and it's great that that it came out. So I'm very happy about that. Yeah, why 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 would that be? Do you think that it stands out? It's just the, the man was magic. Jeff Picard was just magic. There it is. There it is. I don't yeah. even need to add any more than that. Yeah, you're right. All right. So what have you found at sea, Captain? A couple weeks ago, as you know, we finished our Steely Dan tournament, and um, mm-hmm. one of our uh, listeners apparently was inspired by that because, you know, all the rage, of course, is uh, artificial intelligence, G- uh, chat GPT, and, you know, trying to fool chat GPT into making a fool of itself, which it's done many a <laughs> times, but mm-hmm. he put in a listener, Greg. He went to uh, one of the AI generators, a lyric generator, and said, please change the lyric to Hey 19 (laughs) into a song about two guys named Tom and John who make a Yacht Rock podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Get out of here. Way back when, in 67, Tom and John were the best of friends. They didn't know we were brothers. Uh, They loved the smooth sounds of the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles, oops, and Steely Dan. Now they're older and they're wiser. (laughs) Wait, hold on. ChatGPT just ratted us out as being yacht. I know. Yacht, yeah. Uh, Now they're older and they're wiser, but they still have a passion for yacht rock. They make a podcast every week and share their opinions and jokes. None of this even rhymes. (laughs) Hey, 19. That's Tom and John. Hey, 19. That's Tom and John. The finest Yacht Rock podcast you've ever heard. Hey, 19. That's Tom and John. They'll make you feel like you're sailing on a breeze. (laughs) They can't dance together. They can't talk at all. They don't remember the time before the internet. (laughs) I do, actually. (laughs) But they don't care about that at all. They just want to spread the word about Yacht Rock and have some fun along the way. They're not just looking for fame and fortune. I would take fortune. Uh, Mm. But they're just happy to play. Hey, 16. Or hey, 19. Hey, 19. And goes on from there. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to see that artificial intelligence isn't above being caught by uh, Trojan Seahorse lyrics. Yeah, they got the Eagles in there, too. Well, the Eagles, too. Yeah, so obviously AI has a lot to learn. <laughs> Anyways, wow, that's amazing. Who was that? Uh, listener who? Garbage in, garbage out. Yes. Listener Greg. Oh, listener Greg. Thank you. 
All right. Well, that was a hoot. All right. Buried Treasure. Prior to the lightning round, you had mentioned uh, one of the times that I had done a intentional nod to the synth solo structures of Mr. Steve Percara. Well, how many times did we say you do it once? You might as well do it again. So on the second album, I did it again. Let's check out that one. This is page 99, Ticking Away. Do it again. Is that a reference to Steely Dan, too? I can't. I can't stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So what is the buried treasure here? Is the ghost of uh, Steve Picaro or what's buried here? Precisely. Precisely. The fact that Steve's legacy. The muse. Steve's legacy is the very buried treasure in that solo. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All what right. do you got? What do you got? Well, for my buried treasure, you referenced this actually and uh, kind of uh, stopped just short of going down a yes wormhole. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, I was today years old, or at least a few days ago years old, when I realized that Steve Picaro even played on a Yes record. So yeah. I figured I'd go with the uh, aforementioned title track, Open Your Eyes, from the album Open Your Eyes, 1997. Here's a, a tune that Steve Picaro played on. Hit it. Open your eyes and discover Power yes, you've heard of power pop, man. That's yeah, power I gonna, yes. I was gonna say it's very yes sounding, and uh, it's so cool though that those uh, two streams cross. And then now I know the backstory too, that how they kind of met and how they started collaborating. Yeah, I had no idea how that would happen. I would never have guessed. I always thought it was sort of the other way around that John Anderson sang a little bit of backups on Toto's seventh one album, and that was sort of the conduit. But no, it had happened even before that. So. So, does that leave it to me then for off the map, I believe? It does, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going off the map and back to that uh, Steve Picaro Soul album. Okay. Uh, because we talk about personnel. We do, we have. On this here podcast. And uh, this album is just, it's funny. It's not funny. It's just so cool to see a lot of the same names like Lenny Castro and, you know, those usual suspects but here's a tune called night of our own it features uh the aforementioned lenny castro but uh steve lucather on guitar jimmy hahn on acoustic guitar rick Morata on drums lead vocals by michael mcdonald you've heard of him right um yeah he's yachty yep mm-hmm. written by and uh, backup vocals by steve picaro here's night of our own let's take a minute all of our friends have gone home well, let's go back to the Steely Dan tournament just one last time because Pete uh, Fogel, one of our guest uh, bracket busters, joked uh, in, in derision, actually, he said, oh, you, Michael McDonald sings on anything, it's Yacht Rock? <laughs> no, not necessarily. <laughs> but... It is true that Michael McDonald sings on an album, and it changes the whole sonic timbre of the song, and uh, that is the case there. That's just a beautiful, smooth tune. Yeah, yeah, but right. really nice, yep. really nice. Well, sticking with the Steve Percaro theme, which makes sense, uh, I mm-hmm. kind of made a quick mention of this song during our interview. So for my off the map, I just want to make sure that we had an opportunity here to go back to 2015. 
This was written by Steve with that Allie Willis, and he kind of told the story about how the jobs got flip-flopped. He went to her for lyrics, and she ended up helping with melody and kind of encouraged him to come up with the lyrics. And this is Toto from the 14 album. This is called The Little Things. Then a trace of a smile That is vintage Steve Percaro sound right there. Mm. All the mood, all the smooth, all of the, what, what does he call it? The, the sort of the ambiance that he likes to create. Yeah, it's a really nice tune. What year was that, uh, Total 14? 2015. I don't know that everything was recorded in 2015, but um, okay, who but knows? It's, it's a really nice sound. Very yeah. nice sound. Yep. I love that. Would've, it would have fit right in on his Someday Somehow album. Yep. Yeah, very much so. Very much. Okay. Well, that concludes, I think, part one, does it not? It does. So until next week, part two of our Steve Picard interview. Ahoy polloi. No, just ahoy. Ah. <laughs>